Uh, so the first reading comes from Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 6. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one, one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The second reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 5. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, 15 years ago, one of the world's leading academic atheists announced to the world that he might have been wrong, after all, uh, about the whole God thing. Uh, I'm talking about Anthony Flew, who was professor of philosophy at Reading University in the UK, and the author of some major textbooks uh, used in philosophy departments around the world, arguing for atheism. So he was massively on the record, and then uh, wrote this kind of oops book about 15 years ago, uh, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Uh, it's a little bit clickbaity as a title, but it's a great book. Um, it basically outlines why Anthony Flew came to think that atheism was probably implausible. And as he describes it, uh, the fundamental laws of physics, the more we've come to know about that, uh, points, he says, to a mind behind the laws of physics. He said uh, our recent research into the library of information in the DNA code pointed to a rational mind uh, behind it all. Um, the way he described it in highly philosophical terms was there exists a self-existent, immutable, immaterial, omnipotent, and omniscient being, which isn't very sexy. It just basically means, I believe there must be some kind of divine mind 
behind it all. Of course, uh, Christians were jubilant, claiming him as a convert, which wasn't true, and some mean-spirited atheists said the guy had uh, become senile, and that's why he collapsed into uh, belief in God, and that wasn't true either. Anthony Flew had just come to the point where his analysis of the world let him think there must be some kind of maker of heaven and earth, which is the uh, opening idea of the first stanza of the Apostles' Creed that we looked at last week, that there is a God of some kind, the creator behind the universe. Um, God is not like a magic wardrobe hidden in the house of creation somewhere, as I said last week. God is more like the architect of the house. You don't find the architect hiding in the basement. That would really be quite scary. Uh, but everything about the house points to the mind, to the architect uh, behind it all. And Anthony Flew had just come to this uh, insight that is the opening inside of the Apostles' Creed. Now, the important thing that I set up last week to understand is that the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the Christian faith all Christians agree on. I mean, th th this is an 83-word summary of Christianity uh, that goes right back to the early centuries of Christianity, which Roman Catholics accept, Anglicans accept, Presbyterians accept, the Orthodox accept, uh, Pentecostals accept, uh, Uniting Church, Baptist, right? You get the point. It, it, so we're on safe ground working out what is Christianity by staying close to this three stanza summary of the Christian faith in just 83 words in the original language. Um, it all sets up a question I want to confront uh, today that is really the theme of the second stanza of uh, the Apostles' Creed. The question is, how could we know what the Creator is really like? This was a question, incidentally, that uh, Anthony Flew found himself asking. He didn't say that he came to any answers, but he did think, uh, if you can know that there is um, a divine mind behind everything, that the next obvious question is, can you know anything more about that God? And, you know, the logic is, sure, you can establish the existence of an architect just by looking at the house, but you can't know anything about the architect. Uh, you can establish the existence of a film director by looking at the beautiful... Uh, film and the way it's designed, but you can't know anything about the director. Unless, of course, the architect knocks on your door one day and invites herself in for a cup of tea. Then you could get to know her. Or, as Martin Scorsese sometimes does, uh, the director can put himself into the film and then you get to see uh, the director, not just uh, rationally intuit the director. And here's the point about the uh, second stanza of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is how we know not just that God exists, but what God wants for us. And so the first thing I want to uh, point out is the centrality of Jesus Christ. According to the creed, according uh, to the Bible, Jesus is the center. The logic of Christianity is that God, like the architect or uh, the film director, has stepped out of eternity into history and made himself 
known. But what's the first thing you notice about the second stanza of the Apostles' Creed compared to the first? It's blooming long. It's five times longer than the first stanza. You know, God the Father gets a few words, and then it's just Jesus is the hero. Um, There are 83 words, as I said, in the entire Apostles' Creed. 56 of those words are all about Jesus. And more than that, uh, although I call this two stanzas, it all hangs off one verb, I believe. So, Christians find themselves saying, I believe in God the Creator and Jesus Christ. That places an enormous emphasis on Jesus. And there's a reason why there's an enormous emphasis on Jesus Christ. He is how we know not just that God exists, which I believe logic can tell you, but what God wants for us, which you couldn't just work out by pure logic. And it turns out, according to the creed, that what God wants for us could be described in the beautiful word amnesty, amnesty, forgiveness. God calling an amnesty with us. I mean, this uh, word amnesty is in the original Greek, amnesia, right, from which we get amnesia. It means, it means God forgiving and, and forgetting, but, but, but just glance down at the creed or up at the, the screen here, um, what is the center of the center. I mean, Jesus is the hero of the Apostles' Creed, but what's the center of the center? It is those lines, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. Let's ponder this. The creation of the universe got 10 words in the Apostles' Creed. Three days of Jesus' life get 20 words. The creation of the universe in 10 words. Three days of Jesus' life in 20 words. The creed is just reflecting the Bible's teaching that the center of the center is Christ's death and resurrection for our amnesty. Uh, The New Testament passage that we uh, just heard read makes it pretty clear that this is the center of the center. The Apostle Paul, writing in the middle of the first century, says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So, if you've ever wanted to know what the Bible reckons is the thing of first importance, here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. By the way, that means the Old Testament Scriptures and the Isaiah passage printed in your service sheet that we heard a moment ago is a good example because that's an Old Testament Scripture predicting that the Messiah would come and die for sins. Anyway, so Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Kephas, that's uh, Peter's Aramaic name, then to the Twelve. So, here's the thing. The most important thing to know about Christianity about Jesus is that He suffered, died, was buried, rose again for our amnesty. 
Um, last week, I mentioned the parable of the prodigal uh, son. And the reason I mentioned it last week is because it's a beautiful picture of this amnesty idea in that Jesus first describes the sinner as a boy who wants everything his father has to offer him, and then the boy doesn't want anything to do with the father. The son grabs the inheritance from the father and nicks off to a foreign country and spends it on himself. And I just made the point, hopefully I didn't insult anyone in saying this, that that is a perfect example of Australians as sinners. That is, they want all of the gifts of the Creator and nothing to do with the giver. We, we, we want everything of this life and experience we can get. And we don't yet find ourselves giving thanks to God for these things. We are like this child. This is why we need amnesty. And, and Jesus gave this beautiful picture of amnesty by saying that this boy came to his senses and went back to his father. And then Jesus describes the father, a picture of God. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. A beautiful picture of forgiveness, of amnesty. And Jesus told this parable because he knew that within a year or so, he would suffer and die to make that parable a reality in our lives. Amnesty, the center of the center. Now, um, I'm a little bit concerned that this is going live into the internet, but I have an embarrassing admission to offer you this evening. Um, for two years, while I was studying to be a minister at Moore College, I slept with an illegal, unregistered, semi-automatic rifle underneath my bed. Um, it was a gift from a farmer in Gilgandra. If the Zell family are watching from Gilgandra tonight, thank you very much. I loved it, really appreciated it. However, uh, when I, you know, was given this, I, I sort of didn't know what to, to make of it. You know, I, I'm used to getting, you know, like a book voucher or an iTunes voucher or maybe sometimes with a really lavish church, a bottle of wine or something. Uh, but out of Gilgandra, apparently for preaching in their church, you get a semi-automatic rifle. So I took this and the 200 rounds of ammunition uh, that they gave me. And I came home from Gilgandra to my wife and she wasn't well pleased. Let's just put it like that. Uh, we were living in Surrey Hills at the time, in Riley Street. And um, illegal, unregistered, semi-automatic rifles in Riley Street, not a good thing. And, and my wife begged me to get rid of the thing. But I, I couldn't work out how I would get rid of it once I now had it. I couldn't put it out with the recycling. I couldn't go out late at night and bury it in some park in Surrey Hills, you know. And I was really worried about how this would reflect on my ministerial career if I got into trouble with an illegal, unregistered, semi-automatic rifle. So I just left it under the bed. Um, my wife would periodically say, you know, can we get rid of that thing? Two years went by. And then the federal government announced the National Firearm Amnesty. I don't know, some of you may remember this. They were trying to get rid of all the bad weapons that were out there. And, and mine was a bad one. And according to the advertising, you could bring into your local police station 
uh, an illegal or unregistered uh, weapon, no questions asked. You could just hand it over and then walk out of the police station, according to the advertising. And it was everywhere. It was on radio, it was on TV, it was in the newspapers. I worried that it was a trick, to be honest, that it was a way of getting you into the police station and uh, you'd have a record. And again, I did not think it would be a good thing to have this mark against my name as a budding Anglican minister. So I just let the months roll by. The amnesty was for six months. Month one, two, three, but we were in the sixth month and my wife begged me to get rid of this stupid thing. So I decided that she was right after all and I sent her in with the rifle for me. It must have looked really funny when this young mum, we had a two-year-old in tow, uh, got, got into Surrey Hills Police Station uh, with a semi-automatic rifle and a, a bag of 200 rounds of ammunition. And uh, apparently, because I was nowhere to be found, uh, apparently she just handed it over to the policeman. He gave her a very uh, sort of knowing smile. I'm sure many wicked husbands had done this to their wives in the past. And she just turned around and walked straight back out. No questions asked. It turns out it was for real. It was a real amnesty. And all these years later, I can confess to you this highly irregular interlude in my career without any fear of getting into trouble. Just a bit of a bad reputation going out into the internet right now. But that's actually what an amnesty does. Forgives and forgets. And of course, I tell you that true story because it reminds me of this true story. Jesus lived the perfect life none of us could live. He offered up that life on our behalf. As that Old Testament passage put it, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He died. He was buried. He rose again for our amnesty. God is in the business of forgiving and forgetting. And can I just add this? You can't send your partner in for you. It has to be you coming to God for His forgiveness. The centrality of Jesus Christ, the amnesty He came to bring, and finally and quickly, the history that grounds it all. The core of Christianity is not philosophy or ethics, but historical events. The life, teaching, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. At the heart of this is a series of events. And did you notice right in the middle of this lofty creed, talking about the creator of the universe and the amnesty that we can have with God, right in the middle of it, there is this stark reminder that this is history. This belongs to our world. Do you see that? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. What's that doing there? Why is a pagan Roman governor in the universal statement of the Christian faith? And it's one we can date precisely, by the way, because Pontius Pilate 
very uh, conveniently left us an inscription to himself on the coast of Israel, which means we can locate him, we can date him to 26 to 36 of the first century. Why is the fifth governor of Judea in the central agreed statement of the Christian faith? The answer is to remind us that this is history. This happened in a particular time and place between 26 and 36. Christianity is not based on someone's philosophical speculation or words divinely dictated in a holy book or in a mystical dream or vision someone had. No, this is history. I'm not saying we can verify everything. Please don't mishear me. I don't want to exaggerate the claim. But we can verify that this life, and yes, death, burial, resurrection, didn't happen in Middle Earth, where the hobbits are, but in the history of the Middle East, where Pontius Pilate lived and ruled. It's historical. And if you're um, in doubt about that, I'd love to invite you to the Life of Jesus course that um, I'll be leading for this church in a couple of weeks, where we deal with the history as well as with what this might mean. But it's um, reflection on all of this that, that led Anthony Flew to a very interesting place. Um, he pondered could Christianity be the X marks the spot of God's involvement in the world? Um, he, he left us hanging as to what he actually thought, but it's really interesting. He ends the book with an appendix where he in, invited one of the world's leading New Testament historians, uh, Tom Wright, to write an essay at the back of his book on the historical evidence for the resurrection. You might think, what is one of the world's leading atheists, or former atheists, doing inviting a, a Christian scholar to write an outline of the evidence for the resurrection? Well, Anthony Flew basically said, it seems to me that if God has touched the earth in a tangible way, it's, it's this one or, or nothing else. Here's how we put it, introducing Tom Wright's essay. If you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, it seems to me that this is the one to beat. He died a few years ago, and I have no idea where his ponderings led him in the end. All I know is that Christianity, in its central agreed statement of the Apostles' Creed, confronts us with the centrality of Jesus. Friends, there is no version of Christianity that doesn't have Jesus at the center. And at the center of the center is amnesty, His death and resurrection for our forgiveness. And this is not la-la land, this is history. This is reality. 
So Lord, will you please give uh, every one of us, wherever we are in our journey of faith or doubt, uh, clarity, clarity of mind, as well as an openness of heart. In Jesus' name, amen.